Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Austin Drake. And we are excited to be back in the studio with you again. Well, Austin is involved in ministry here in Albuquerque at Hoffmantown Church. He works with the college students there, and I invited him to join us this morning to discuss a little bit about archaeology. Thanks, Nate. I'm so excited to have Austin in the studio. Well, we're going to be playing for you the presentation that Dr. Craig Evans gave at the recent Engage conference at Hoffmantown Church. And it was a great conference. We had some great speakers there. But this one was particularly awesome as Dr. Evans went through some of the archaeological evidence. If you were in the theater a couple weeks ago, you would have seen Dr. Evans doing the Fragments of Truth documentary. It was released nationwide and Here you're going to get to hear some of the same stuff you heard there, but probably a little bit more as well. It'll be awesome. But to preface that, we wanted to kind of start things out sharing some of the archaeological evidence for the Bible. Now, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about this, so we're just going to highlight a few different things, but I hope that this will be encouraging for you. So we're going to start off with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and as you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the accuracy of the Old Testament, and right now they have a team out in Qumran uh, excavating the 13th cave. It'll be exciting to hear what they come up with. The Kedef Hinnom Amulet Scrolls also document the reliability of the Old Testament, and the fact that Yahweh was worshipped in Israel before the exile, something that some critics try to shoot down. You know, the Merneptah Stella confirms Egypt and Israel and their, their interactions and Israel's place in that part of the world at that time. And it's actually the oldest description of Israel outside of the Bible. The Moabite stone does kind of the same thing, confirming Israel and their relationship with Moab at that time, just like the Bible says as well. And the Tel Dan inscription is uh, a corroboration of the Bible because it affirms the uh, existence of David, and and they actually have a uh, excavation going on right now at Teleton that has further uh, uh, has dug up further evidence for the existence of David. So that's another corroboration of the Old Testament as well. Absolutely. You know, some of the Bulai that have been found are fascinating. These are the imprints of seals that confirm numerous different people in the Bible. One that's very exciting to me is the Baruch Bula. Actually, there are two of them. I shouldn't say one. Some people have said that they might not be legitimate. I think they are. But whatever the case, uh, it's an exciting find, and there are more that are not questioned that are very exciting too. Yeah, there's the Hezekiah Bula, which is it's affirmed that he has uh, put his stamp on, on that. And so that's been historically confirmed. And then there's Hezekiah's tunnel where it has his plaque in the middle. Um, also, another minor character is Ahmaz, uh, which is uh, an ex- obscure figure in, in, in the Bible. And he was one of Solomon's deputies, and, but he's only mentioned three times. But it's cool to see that history corroborates not only the large figures, but also the small ones. Um, Another bula is Isaiah, and that has just been found, so that's really exciting. Absolutely. The Jezebel seal is another exciting seal 
And uh, you got other exciting inscriptions like the Goliath inscription from Gath, from the right time frame for Goliath in the exact city that he came from. There are only two inscriptions there with names, and that's one of them. It's definitely fascinating. And Uzziah's burial plaque. You might remember in Isaiah 6, it says, in the year when King Uzziah died. Well, that burial plaque from that king has been found as well. All very exciting finds. Another exciting one is the house of Yahweh Ostrakhan, which confirms the first temple and, again, that Yahweh was worshipped in Israel before the exile. The James Ossuary has been debated. A lot of people have said it's a forgery. At the same time, one of the most famous paleographers alive said, if this is a forgery, I quit. And, in fact, some of the evidence that it was a forgery is not evidence at all. Whether or not it's true, there are other ossuaries that are corroborated. Yeah, there's Caiaphas's ossuary, and if you know Caiaphas, he was one of the high, or the high priest that uh, put Jesus on trial, and they found his bone box. So that's that has been confirmed historically. Um, another part of the passion that has been confirmed is the uh, Pilate inscription, which confirms the office and name of Pontius Pilate. So that's really exciting. Um, and something a little unrelated is the Sea of Galilee boat, which has been uh, dated back to the first century. So that's also some really exciting history. It is. Both of us have been to that yeah, place and yeah. seen the Sea of Galilee boat. And when I sat there looking at it, I couldn't help but wonder, did Jesus preach from this exact boat? Mm-hmm. It's, it's very exciting. You know, another neat find is the first century uh, cartouche or sarcophagus that contained probably the earliest New Testament manuscript in existence that we know of to date. And that's a fragment of Mark. It hasn't been publicly released yet, but many believe it'll go back to the first century, maybe even as early as A.D. 75. There's a very good chance that this fragment of Mark goes back to the lifetimes of the disciples. Very exciting stuff. Well, anyway, that is just a little bit of an idea of some of the archaeological evidence that's out there, but there's no one better than Craig Evans to tell you more about it. So without any further ado, here's Craig Evans talking about some of the archaeological evidence for the Bible. It is my uh, pleasure to introduce uh, our first speaker here today. It's uh, Professor Craig A. Evans. For those of you who don't know Craig Evans... He's a distinguished professor of Christian origins at Houston Theological Seminary. He's a New Testament scholar, prolific author, and popular teacher and speaker. He's well known for his contribution to work on the Gospels, the historical Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and archaeology of the New Testament. He regularly appears in documentaries, TV, and radio interviews and he lectures extensively and participates in archaeological digs and Holy Land tours. For decades, he has been engaging, his engaging style in live events, teaching, media, and the written word has brought the Bible to life for countless students, popular audiences, and seekers. And I know for me personally, he's had a big impact on my life. So with uh, no further ado, I just want to introduce you to Craig Evans, Dr. Craig Evans. Thank you again, Hello. Craig Evans. Hey, it's very good to be with you. And uh, I wish I could be with you, uh, you know, literally, physically, instead of being in South Texas and Houston. But I'm actually in the middle of a conference right now. Well, and uh, just 20 minutes ago, finished my own paper uh, in this setting. Uh, there, what I'd like to talk to you about 
is what was just introduced about archaeology and where it connects with uh, the, uh, historical Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the important things to be said about it. He began with the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review, and I hope you can see this. And I'll put my finger on one item in particular. It's right there. This is the Isaiah seal. <clears throat> now, I know that uh, a seal or a bulla that uh, is concerned with Isaiah the prophet doesn't directly relate to the historical Jesus. But here's the point I want to make. There's an ongoing war for the last 25 years that's called uh, minimalism, historical or biblical minimalism. There are scholars uh, who have said that, well, you know, we really don't know there was a history of Israel, that the books of Samuel and Kings, you know, we, as far as we know, they're just fairy tales, fiction. There might not have even been a King Saul, a King David, or a Solomon. It's just, it's just romance literature. It's the kind of literature that you have in uh, stories about King Arthur or Robin Hood or something like that. But a series of archaeological finds, including one I just showed you on the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review, continues to show again and again and again that these narratives that are in the Bible are, in fact, talking about real people, real places, real events, things that actually happen. This uh, Isaiah seal was found <clears throat> uh, just a few months ago at, south of the old city of Jerusalem in the area that's called the City of David by Eilat Mazar, granddaughter of legendary Benjamin Mazar. Two and a half years ago, she found a seal, that uh, clay seal that has the name Hezekiah the king on it. And she reports that about three meters away, or about 10 feet away, just a few months ago, they found another seal. And this one says, Isaiah, or belonging to Isaiah the prophet. This is Isaiah, you know, he's the most important prophet, I think, of all of them. He's the prophet who lived in the 8th century B.C. He's a contemporary of King Hezekiah. He knew Hezekiah and spoke to him on different occasions. He comforted Hezekiah when Hezekiah was threatened by Assyria, by the uh, Assyrian king and dictator, Sennacherib. We all know what happens. The Bible says that after Sennacherib had conquered 46 fortified cities and besieged Jerusalem, demanding gold and silver, which he received, demanding that Hezekiah surrender, mocking the God of Hezekiah, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, laughing at him and saying, the gods of the other people, peoples that I have conquered, not protect them. Why do you think the Lord will protect you? And Isaiah went into Hezekiah and said, the Lord has heard your prayers. He has seen your tears. This king who threatens you will be no more. Abruptly, Sennacherib withdrew. The Bible story tells us he found most of his army dead. Historians speculate perhaps there was some kind of epidemic or plague, but whatever it was, he found it necessary to beat a very hasty retreat. 
He returned to Assyria, and not long afterwards, he was assassinated. He left behind what we call Sennacherib's prison. It's, a, it's, uh, it's not a cylinder shape, but it's a tall prism-shaped inscription. Talks about, he agrees with the biblical account. He captured 46 fortified cities. He besieged Jerusalem. He brags that he had Hezekiah the king like a bird in the cage. And then he abruptly withdrew. Why do you do that? When you have your enemy on the ropes, when you're ready to land the knockout punch, why do you go home? Well, the biblical account explains, well, it's because a disaster overtook him. Well, is this mythology? It turns out we actually have corroboration. The events did occur. We actually have now physical archaeological evidence from Sennacherib himself, who was no friend of Judea. We have the actual clay seals that were used to seal books, scrolls that were rolled up and tied with a string, and the clay seal was pressed on the string. And when later fires burned archives, these clay seals were cooked, became ceramic, which is why they survived hundreds and hundreds of years. We actually have now the name of Hezekiah on a seal. We have the name of Isaiah the prophet. This is just one of many ongoing finds over the last 25 years that show that the biblical narratives really are talking about people, real places, real events. Let me back up a little bit more. First, let me show you. Here is a picture of the Isaiah seal. You can see it on the screen. I hope you can. And on the top line, we actually it actually reads belonging to Isaiah, and then the line below it is prophet, so it's Isaiah the prophet. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution, you can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. We're listening to a presentation that Dr. Craig Evans did at the Engage conference back in March. 25 years ago, some minimalists and skeptics were saying there is no real history of Israel. And then we found the Tel Dan inscription. And right on this inscription found at Tel Dan, which is in the northern part of Israel, just south of the Lebanese border. It actually refers to the house of David. And some skeptics immediately said, oh, this is a forgery. Someone forged it and planted it in the soil for the archaeologist team to find. And that was an insult to the archaeologist. He was angry about it. But the next year, while he's standing right there, they unearthed yet a second piece of the inscription. And the two pieces formed together, they joined together, thus confirming beyond any shadow of doubt the authenticity of the inscription. So here we actually have the name of the king of Israel, the house of David. And the inscription is not by the Jewish people, by the Syrians. They're not friends. And so here we are, you know, way up north, far away from Jerusalem, an inscription, a boundary inscription referencing the house of David, proving beyond a shadow of doubt that David was a real person. This inscription is not a forgery, and the inscription refers to the house of David and should not be interpreted any other way. Well, some said, okay, maybe David did exist. Was he really the king of a kingdom? Maybe he's just a tribal chieftain. Well, ongoing archaeology in Jerusalem, where 
we found the seal referencing Hezekiah, where we found just months ago a seal referencing Isaiah the prophet, a great palace and government complex have been uncovered, a complex of bureaucracy that is way beyond what would be necessary for a smallish city like Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. So it's, it's concluded that for the city to have such a large government building, it must have governed a large empire, not simply the city of Jerusalem and a little bit of territory around it. So it seems that there really was a kingdom of David after all. And no wonder a bout remark was found so far north at Tel Dan. It's all beginning to come together. But, you know, the skeptics never liked to give up. Minimalists then said, well, okay, maybe there was a kingdom. Maybe David was the king. But who was around to write the stories down? Could anybody really write 3,000 years ago? Well, it's almost like God is listening to all this skepticism and laughing and shaking his head. Because not long after that, at a place called Caiapha, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, another discovery made. A piece of pottery called Astrakhan is found with seven lines of Paleo-Hebrew written on it. And this Paleo-Hebrew demonstrated that indeed people could write 3,000 years ago. In fact, it's the kind of Hebrew that we find in the books of Samuel and Kings very books in the Old Testament that tell the story, of course, of King Saul, King David, Solomon, and their successors. Of course, skeptics don't want to give up too quickly, and they argued, well, maybe this isn't really Hebrew. Maybe it's a Canaanite language instead. They were similar back then. The alphabets were shared. And so maybe it's a Philistine city and not Hebrew. Well, the archaeologists pointed out, no, sorry, we are only finding kosher animal remains. We're not finding bones of pigs or dogs, which is what Philistines ate. The, the casemate construction of the walls showed it is, in fact, Jewish, not Philistine. And then, in fact, ongoing study of the Ostrakhan suggests that it might actually be an announcement referring to the need for someone like Saul to become king. In other words, the Ostrakhan might actually reach back to the time just before David when Israel received its first king, King Saul. So it just shows you how minimalism is, is so wrongheaded, uh, rejecting the old biblical narratives. I'm, I'm sorry, the rejection receives no support from archaeology. I have found this, and I use this as an introduction to my other remarks. It just shows you how there's this stubborn resistance to what the ancients wrote long ago. I think some of it is modern arrogance. We think we're smarter, but we're more critical, we're more discerning, and the ancient peoples were stupid, and they were gullible, and they believed anything they heard. And shame on us for thinking that way. People 3,000 years ago were very smart, educated, many of them were literate. They knew the difference between history and myth. They knew how to write history. They knew how to tell their stories in a way that made sense. Archaeological discoveries have been showing that. After all, if the books of Samuel and Kings were nothing but myth, 
if people like Saul and David and Solomon were just mythological figures, if these stories were nothing but fairy tales, why would archaeology support it? But archaeology supports it because these biblical narratives are real history. They're actually talking about real people. No, I don't mean to say that the way the biblical authors wrote history 3,000 years ago is the way we prefer to write history now. Obviously, there have been changes. Well, now let's fast forward to uh, 2,000 years ago. Let's go to the first century A.D., the time of Jesus and the New Testament Gospels. And that's what my talk is mostly focused on today. I cite the Old Testament minimalism because it illustrates well some of the unfounded skepticism that you hear circulating regarding the New Testament Gospels. So there are several things we can say about the New Testament Gospels. One of them is some people will say, well, how do you know the New Testament Gospels are the ones that tell the story about Jesus most accurately? Maybe we should read some of the Gnostic writings. After all, that's what Dan Brown said. His fictional character in his novel, The Da Vinci Code, uh, the character called Sir Lee Tebening, why he knew everything. He knew there was a conspiracy. The Vatican's involved, of course. Emperor Constantine chose the Gospels, chose the ones that uh, depict Jesus in mythological, supernatural terms, instead of the Gospels that was real Jesus, the man who was in love with Mary Magdalene and so forth. Of course, how silly Dan Brown to write this way. It's the exact opposite. When you read the Gospels of the New Testament, you have the incarnate Jesus. You have the Jesus who really is human. When you read the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels, he isn't human at all. People can see through him. Maybe his feet don't even touch the ground. Uh, he, he denies his humanity. He's just this heaven being just talks on and on about the different layers of heaven and all kinds of secret knowledge you're supposed to acquire if you're to be saved. And this Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels bears no resemblance to anybody in the first century. These Gospels completely lack verisimilitude. So here comes archaeology once again into the picture. I am personally acquainted with several archaeologists they're not all Christians. Many of them are Israeli, people like Lonnie Reich, Gabriel Parkai, Kurt Rave, and others. And some of the archaeologists I know are Christians, like James F. Strain, Florida, and others. And they make use of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Book of Acts, and also the historian Josephus all the time. I know them very well. They read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Josephus so they know where to dig and how to understand what they uncover when they dig something up. Why? Why do they do that? Because they find these Gospels, New Testament Gospels, the first century Gospels, Gospels written in the time when many people who knew Jesus were still living. These Gospels accurately describe events in the past accurately talk about real places and where they are located, how many miles from Jerusalem or where in Jerusalem. They accurately provide names of these places and so forth. And so the archaeologists find the New Testament Gospels very useful historical sources. I have participated in archaeological digs. They're costly. 
They're time consuming. They involve 40, 50 volunteers who at their own expense fly to Israel, at their own expense stay in a hotel, volunteer diggers. And without them, these digs could not take place. The archaeologist does not want to waste their time. He doesn't want to waste his time. The archaeologist wants to know where to dig, wants to know the meaning of what is being dug up. And they find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, very useful, accurate. Even if they're not Christians, they find the Gospels very accurate and reliable sources. And what's really interesting, you may get a different impression if you read Dan Brown, and you may get a different impression if you read some of the publications of the group called the Jesus Seminar, uh, located, headquartered in California. You might get the impression from them that there are a whole bunch of other gospel sources that are very early, like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Peter, or some of these other writings. They are just as valuable, just as historical, maybe even more so than Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But you know what? You find an archaeologist that agrees with that. I don't know a single archaeologist. In fact, I suspect there is not a single archaeologist out there who makes use of the Gospel of Thomas and, uh, you know, the Jesus speaks secret thing, or the Gospel of Peter, so-called, that has a giant cross come out of uh, out of the tomb, Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. They know fiction when they see it. They know stuff that does not exhibit verisimilitude when they see it. But they do know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Josephus give, the, give us reliable history and very important information. And this is coming from Israeli archaeologists who do not necessarily think the Gospels are inspired do not necessarily think that Jesus was literally raised from the dead. These are This is coming from some scholars, some archaeologists who do not necessarily <clears throat> think that Jesus is God's son, or the Savior whose death on the cross results in forgiveness of sins for those who receive it. But they do see the Gospels as historically reliable, and the evidence continues to mount. In fact, one of the hardest questions uh, that I face when um, I, I give lectures on this topic, someone will always, the audience, will ask the question, well, has there been an archaeological discovery that contradicts uh, one of the Gospels or shows that the, the Gospels, in fact, has made a mistake? And boy, I have to scratch my head, I have to think about it. And, you know, no, I'm not aware of one like that. We make discoveries oftentimes that, uh, that, that help us understand better uh, things that will obscure the Gospels. Sometimes we realize we have misunderstood one of the Gospels, or we, like the Pool of Siloam, for example. We had it in the wrong location. And, uh, and then archaeologist, I think it was in 2004, Eli Chouton, discovered the real Pool of Siloam. I know Ellie, I've, I've done tours in Israel with him, and we'll do another one next year. I've been to the Pool of Siloam, now that it's been uncovered, at least partially. <clears throat> it turns out the Gospel of John knew what it was talking about. There it is, the real pool, and uh, the other pool that's uh, connected to that water, but it's in the wrong location, uh, dates back to the medieval period, and it was simply the wrong location. The Gospels weren't mistaken. 
it was just later Christian uh, uh, tourists and pilgrims. They were mistaken. The Gospels had it right. It just took us a while to find that out. Well, that's the end of our first half of the presentation that Dr. Evans did at the Engage conference. You can come back next week to hear the second half of that presentation, and it will be very exciting as well. I hope you don't miss it. And if you found this evidence compelling and you just feel like you need to move and uh, make a decision on it, just know that God loves you. And we're separated from God because of sin. But Jesus provided a way for us to be in relationship with God by dying and raising from the dead so that we can have salvation. That's absolutely correct. And if you're at a point right now where you've never taken this step to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, why not tell him that right now in prayer? Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible says if you take that step, that you'll be adopted into God's family and that you can look forward to a life of meaning and purpose on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. I'm so thankful that you listened today. If you already do know the Lord, please share some of this evidence with your friends. There's a whole world out there that needs to know the gospel and the reliability of the gospel. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com to get all of our past shows and to let us know what you think about the show and all that. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.